Thanks so much for tuning in to another episode of Principle of Hospitality, the podcast. Now, we've had a collision of worlds, a joining of forces, a banding of brothers. Sash from Principle Design and me, Sean from Open Pantry Consulting, are pleased to announce this venture for 2021, Principle of Hospitality. Now, we know that food brings people together and promotes community. And at Principle of Hospitality, we are here to disrupt current perceptions of what the hospitality industry can achieve in today's ever-evolving and challenging environment. Now, that's why we've partnered with Chef's Hat on this Principle of Hospitality podcast. Now, if you didn't know, Chef's Hat is the largest family-owned and operated hospitality supplier in Australia. They strive to inspire cooks, chefs, bakers, and bartenders to deliver the best product with the best tools every day. So that's why we're so proud to partner with Chef's Hat, where the industry shops. Now let's get into today's podcast. I think you're really gonna enjoy it. Welcome to another Principle of Hospitality podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in. Stomping Ground is a neighborhood brewery bringing together people over great beer with Victorian locations in Moorabbin, which is opening in May, Melbourne Airport, and their home base here in Collingwood where we're recording today. It's so easy to see how they're bringing together people over great beer. Stomping Ground has built a reputation for being some of the best independent beers in the market with a focus on sustainability, collaboration, and fun. So it's a privilege to sit down with one of the founders of Stomping Ground today, Justin Joyner. Hey, Justin, how are you? Very well, thanks, Sean. Thanks for having me. Mate, it is an absolute pleasure to be here. We are here on, say, Patrick's Day. Um, I'm glad I didn't think of that before we actually did the podcast. Um, so it's awesome to have, you know, the background um, and hearing, you know, hearing people enjoying their beer as we're here. Um, let's talk about how you started out in the industry, because I know there is a depth there and and whenever we talk to anyone in beer, it's always a fantastic story. So do you want to give us a bit of an insight? Yeah, well, it is. I guess it is a bit of a tale. I think um, from a hospitality perspective, uh, I can probably go back as far as when I was 16 serving popcorn at a suburban um, <laughs> cinema complex. Um, but uh, my love for pubs probably started, pubs and, and um, uh, food and bev hospitality probably started in the summer of 98, 99 when right. I... Um, went down to Sorrento and did a summer at the Conti Hotel down there and mm-hmm. did everything from picking up glasses to serving beers to washing <laughs> dishes to everything. A mate of mine from school's cousin owned it at the time. Right. And um, I really felt the buzz of, of hospitality um, mm-hmm. down there. I mean, my love for pubs probably predated that, if I'm honest. I think that I have vivid memories of being a really young kid and walking past a pub and just smelling the stale beer and the cigarettes and, <laughs> and hearing the sort of buzz that, from inside and just um, I just felt like they were magical places that I wanted to go and yeah. for our family it wasn't um, wasn't a common thing to go to the pub but on the times where we did and we had some fish and chips uh, or some sort of counter meal it was just such an exciting place to be and I don't think I ever really lost that excitement about about pubs particularly but, mm-hmm. but hospitality generally mm-hmm. so I went down and, and did that summer at, at the Conti and, um, and had a lot of fun and it was um, just before I headed off to the UK for, for the sort of fairly traditional two years backpacking yes. um, through the UK and, and uh, Europe. Mm-hmm. Um, and over there, 
I actually, my first job in the UK was um, at a, just outside of Stratford-upon-Avon in the Midlands, Shakespeare mm-hmm. country, um, and, and a big sort of beautiful country English pub. And it was a great introduction to the English pub scene. And uh, it's a pub scene that still, I think, is probably head and shoulders about uh, above most places in the world just for its um, culture and its heritage. Yeah. And, and everything that goes along with it. And this pub was was a big venue, 16th century, so low ceilings, um, uh, a big outdoor terrace space, food led. So probably about 40% of the of the business was food. Right. Uh, typical big Sunday lunch, yeah. that sort of thing. And it was there that I kind of really understood what that buzz of working in hospitality mm. is to do a massive service with a crew of mates essentially yeah the place was staffed uh, almost entirely by backpackers they re- <laughs> it was outside of london but they'd recruited everyone from london so there were it was run by a, a big burly zimbabwean guy who was a real old school sort of traditional publican who mm-hmm. knew everyone's name and um, really was a bit of an inspiration around the place mm-hmm. and then staffed by Australians and Kiwis and South Africans and Italians and, um, and it was a lot of fun. It was, and it was just this beautiful countryside venue with a, with a helipad out the front. And wow. Literally, <laughs> Sunday lunch, there'd be half a dozen helipads, uh, sorry, helicopters um, on the front <laughs> lawn. These like little two-seaters for all these wealthy people from English uh, sort of oh countryside just to fly in. And, um, and it was just a great experience. And it, I... I Started there as a bartender when I just arrived in London with no money, yep. uh, and ended up actually running the place briefly as a 21-year-old. Wow! Um, just through a sequence of events, with um, I was an assistant manager for the last sort of three or four months, and mm. ended up taking over when when the manager left for for a few months. Um, way too young to be to be running a venue of that size at the time, <laughs> and way too inexperienced. <laughs> but it was a, it was a steep learning curve, and yeah. and um, and as I said, it was kind of that introduction to that that big sort of hospo um vibe that rush that you get with a big service and the, yeah. and the camaraderie that comes in a team and but i also learned things get moving moving my way up through the sort of management ranks i did learn about things like stock takes i learned about things yeah. like looking after real ales in in the cellar mm-hmm. uh and the importance of food and and then the, the style of this of this publican um Grant, his name was, was was to know everyone's name and know their drink and yeah, and that real that. sort of mm. old school. Uh, you know, my pub is an extension of is 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 like a lounge room and, you, and you're all welcome in, in my venue and that mm-hmm. that really struck me and and has stayed with me um, since then. Really, yeah. Um, from there, I went to London for for the second year of my two year visa over there and mm-hmm. worked most of the time. Um, in a restaurant in St James's Place, just off Piccadilly, there, which was probably way too flash for someone like me at the time working <laughs> there. But once again, uh, probably two thirds of the staff were backpackers, and yeah. um, and it was as much about the party as it was the work. But it was it was a modern um, European menu mm-hmm. and a really amazing fit out. It was a uh, it was an old bank um, with a wow. big glass elevator they'd put in the middle and a mezzanine floor for functions and then a basement restaurant doing sort of uh, Asian fusion and then the, the middle level which was the main kind of old banking hall yeah. uh, was this um, modern European food with a lounge and people smoking cigars and wow. it, was, it was a beautiful place yeah. um, and it was owned by a guy called Peter Gladwin who was um, quite a sort of significant chef around London at the time he had a catering company that used to cater for things like the Queen's birthday like 
literally mm-hmm. the, her birthday, not not just a public holiday. <laughs> right. Um, and uh, so, yeah, it's sort of a Harry the Hira type thing yeah. for, for the elite over there as well mm-hmm. as three or four restaurants and this was one of those. And, um, again, uh, another amazing experience and some great people through there that um, – probably learned a little bit about about wine lists and, mm. and cocktails and that sort of thing that I hadn't been exposed to mm-hmm. um, back here or, or in previous jobs. And um, and again, there's a lot there that, that I sort of um, took with me and and, um, and really relished that, that sort of learning opportunity, I guess. Yeah, right. So then you've come back to Australia after a two-year visa? Yeah, so I came back in uh, mid-2001. Okay. And I was a bit unsure at that stage what I wanted to do. I, I was... Uh, pretty sure it was going to be something in hospitality, yep. um, but I hadn't really settled on anything at that stage. Um, but I wanted to. What I did know is that the experience that I'd had over there in working way up to uh, my way up to a venue manager role in a pub wasn't going to cut it here in terms of a role at that level. Mm-hmm. And so I sort of set about starting um, at the beginning here and really learning how things worked and trying to get back up to that sort of venue manager role as quickly as I could. Yeah. Um, and so I started at a, what is now the uh, Crafty Squire in, yeah, in right. Russell Street, which was then it was when I the, it was just in the process of changing from a venue called the Dead the Red Ant, which was before that a strip club, but it, it had it had phased out of its strip club phase and into um, a new venue called the Red Ant, mm-hmm. which was owned by Lion Nathan, and that, at right. that at that time they bought. 46 pubs in Melbourne in, wow. and it was their first sort of big foray into the Melbourne market trying to sell their beers and mm-hmm. essentially to his new mainly but then beers like to his extra dry Han premium yep. um, James Squire started coming into it shortly after that it mm-hmm. was their, their strategy at the time was to buy key pubs in key areas Brunswick Street um, it, uh, Clarendon Street in South Melbourne mm-hmm. CBD mm-hmm. and Chapel Street and really force feed Victoria, um, yeah. Lion Nathan beers, and yeah. so I was I was part of that sort of movement, and that venue quickly after I started went from the Red Out to its original name, which was the Portland Hotel. Right, and at that point, Lion put a, what is now the James Squire Brewhouse in there as well. So they right. they, they put the brewery in, and that was um, really. A turning point for me in terms of interest in in craft beer and learning mm. about beer because I'd, I'd being the bogan that I was I'd spent two <laughs> years in Europe drinking Fosters yes. and come back uh, and and missed all the opportunities over there of, of drinking the great beers that were available mm. and came back and then learned about the beers and so I had to go back later on to um to enjoy the the uh, great beers of Europe but <laughs> um so the brewery went in in, in two thousand and one again there was a few name changes before they settled on the James Squire Brewhouse concept okay um and there was a couple of really influential people there that that i learned a lot off about beer mm-hmm. um and they were the brewers doug Donnellan and michael commodan who used to who was quite senior at, at the malt shovel brewery in sydney and they'd fly down once a fortnight to brew the beers at the portland as yep. well yeah and through that experience i just it it was just a massive awakening in terms of what beer could be, how it actually was made, the ingredients, touching and feeling and getting involved with the brewing. Yeah. Um, and they brewed a stout, ironically, it, Michael was Irish, so it's ironic that we're doing this on St. Patrick's <laughs> Day. But they brewed a stout called the Crack, C-R-A-I-C. Yeah. That um, really just changed my perspective on beer forever. I just couldn't believe that wow. something could be so delicious. And... Um, I never really went back. I think bef- bef- right up until that moment, I was drinking 
um, you know, Carlton Draft and other mainstream lagers. Yeah. And it was at that point I thought, wow, there's a whole world out there that um, needs exploring and, and that's what I sort of started to do. Can you remember what you loved about it the most, that particular beer? What, well, what the taste was that really got you? Yeah, well, it was, it was uh, basically what we call a milk stout. So it, was the, right. it had a bit of lactose in it. It was mm-hmm. quite sweet. Um, and it was just a, a beautiful, creamy kind of stout. And I'd always, like I'd been to the Guinness Brewery and not really enjoyed <laughs> Guinness, which was, which was a massive faux pas. But um, it was, yeah, just an extraordinarily complex uh, beer as well. There was, there was just so much to it. And yeah. Um, I guess being in the brewery and watching it be uh, it, watching the process and being a part of that as well kind of added to the to the whole experience. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but I also I, that was part of a of a time where the craft brewing scene in Australia was just really starting to um, to to take off. I guess it was still there's probably I think there's about 700 breweries in Australia now. Yeah. At that time, there would have been less than 50. And that and we're talking 20 wow. years ago. Yeah. Um, but Doug and Michael, while they were brewing, people from all over the industry used to come in and, and see them from other breweries and, and that sort of thing. So I got introduced to all these brewers, um, some, of, some of whom are still brewing, um, you know, the likes of Brad Rogers at Stone mm-hmm. & Wood, mm-hmm. um, Paul Holgate, these sort of guys that were brewing way back then, yes. um, craft beer that, you know, you know, and new and interesting styles that, that hadn't been sort of seen before in Melbourne. Mm-hmm. And so it was not just a kind of awakening experience for the actual beers. It was more just seeing this industry and seeing, and they all just seemed like great people and yeah. everyone got along and they were collaborating and they were helping each other out. And mm-hmm. it was, I immediately wanted to be part of the brewing industry mm-hmm. as well as um, the hospitality industry. Yeah. Right. So yeah. what did you, what did you do after that? So you've obviously, you know, so this time at the Red Ant. Yeah, yeah. So the Red <laughs> the Ant James came Square. to Portland Hotel yes. with the James Squire Brew House. It yes. was HMC, which was the, the company that Lion set up to to um, operate all those pubs in Melbourne. Yep. Um, was sold to a group called Open Door Pub Company. Yes. Uh, which was later again sold to Australian Venue Company. Yes. Um, and when it was so, so I I was there for five years in the end, and so wow. starting off doing a couple of shifts a week on the bar, and ended up the venue manager for the last three or two and a half of those years. Right. Um, and then worked in another couple of venues for Open Door Pub Co. Mm-hmm. Before I, my, a, a rep came in to, I was working at the Exchange Hotel in Port Melbourne. Yep. Um, looking after it for a mate while he went to the Rugby World Cup in, right. in uh, 2007. Okay. And um, my Lion rep came in and said, what are you doing next? Because I, I had just been away for a while and I was just having a bit of a break and I didn't know what I, what I was going to be doing and she said well you should meet this guy Steve he's opening this bar in St Kilda right um, and it's a crazy idea it's going to be 20 different beers on tap and it's like nothing Melbourne's ever seen and you'd be perfect for it you love beer you should give him a call mm-hmm. so I did give him a call and then um, got an email back from him saying "Come, let's, let's catch up and CC on that email was Guy Greenstone, who had also been a rep of mine when I was at the Portland, right. and I knew him quite well. So I started feeling relatively confident about the situation. Yes. And these are the two guys that are now my business partners in Stomping Ground. So right. that was kind of the beginning of our working together, which was 14 years ago now. Yeah, right. And so they hired me as their first venue manager for the local tap house in St Kilda. Yes. Um, which was a beer bar 
doing beer in a way that really hadn't been done in Melbourne, possibly Australia, but definitely not in Melbourne at that stage. Like I said, to, we're talking about maybe 50 breweries in Australia yeah. um, at the time. And it was like you had to go and find enough beers to, to kind of fill the taps on a regular basis, especially yeah. if you wanted to rotate different beers mm. through through each tap. So the concept was was 20 beers. It was as many different styles as possible on tap at any one time. So wow. at the time, we were starting to see big venues in the city with 20 taps, but you'd yes. go in there and there'd be eight pale lagers. You'd, mm-hmm. you know, you'd have all the usual suspects and then you'd have a, a Guinness and, and maybe there might be a pale ale if you're lucky or a wheat beer or something like that. Mm. But the, orig- the, the concept for the local tap house was to have a Saison on there and mm. a, um, some Belgian beers represented and some German styles represented and yep. then an American IPA yep. um, and really that broad, broad range. And then to get the best example of each style that we could possibly get either from either internationally or, or preferably um, locally. There was probably a, f- a fair bit for some of the more... Um, some of the more out there styles I guess there was probably more leaning to the international stuff because that's where the standard was being set at the time so right. lots, of, lots of American beers coming in um, and at the time the the range would we would look back now at that tap list to begin with and think it was quite commercial in, mm. in terms of there was a couple of James Squires on there there was some Coopers on there mm-hmm. um, there was the big sort of Belgian beers Who Garden Left that yep. sort of thing yeah um, so it would look quite commercial now, but that was that was what we needed to do to get that breadth of styles, which is what we wanted. Mm-hmm. Um, and we wanted people, really one of the key things we wanted people to be doing is to come in and be educated enough to be ordering a beer by style. So in the same way that people were going to wine bars and asking for a Chardonnay, yes. we wanted people to come in and ask for a stout or a porter or a, um, a Saison or a wheat yep. beer or what have you. So... Because at that time, people were going in and ha- having a pot of heavy or a pot of light, probably. Yes. yes. So it was kind of... It's pretty it was, basic. Yeah. We, mm. we, we really wanted to empower the staff with, with information mm. and training mm-hmm. and be able to um, impart that knowledge onto the, the punters yes. to give them the opportunity to sort of explore different styles and, and, and discover new things when it came to beer. Yeah. Um, and... Uh, but all while not being wankers about it is one of the things that mm. we used to drill into the staff. We wanted to be enthusiastic about it without shoving it down people's throat. Yes. And we wanted part of a, a really integral part of the whole concept was that if you wanted to come in and drink a top shelf whiskey with Pepsi in it, you were just as welcome as someone that wants to sit at the end of the bar and talk about barrel aged barley wines for yes. two hours. You know what I mean? <laughs> and it had to it had to be that. Otherwise, we would just be. Snobs, beer yeah, snobs, some elitist yeah. kind of yeah. bar. Yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. So, so how did Stomping Ground come about? You're obviously talking about the two partners, you know, knowing them with Local Tap House. Was Local Tap House the the last thing you did before Stomping Ground came on board? No. So the Local Tap House opened in February 2008. Yeah. Then the Local Tap House in, uh, in Darlinghurst in Sydney opened 12 months after that. Right. Uh, which was which we've since sold. We sold that in, in 2017 to focus on stomping ground. Yeah. Um, and then I'm going to be tested on dates here, but around <laughs> about 2011, um, we had we one of the things we used to do at the local tap house quarterly is uh, were called spectaculars, and they were themed beer festivals at the venue. So 20 okay. 20 beers on tap, preferably beers that hadn't been tasted by anyone ever ever before. If they had, it was still 
a, a list of rare stuff that we could put on and it might be a, um, American Independence Day theme so yep. all the beers were American or yep. Oktoberfest was one there was mm-hmm. one that was all about hoppy beers mm-hmm. that sort of thing and in I think it was 2011 in January we um, won, the, the festival that we decided to do was the great Australian beer spectacular mm-hmm. which was essentially asking 20 brewers from around Australia to brew a beer specifically for the event a brand wow. new beer it just had to be that's that was kind of the rules wow and that was the birth of, of Gab's Beer Festival which is yeah. now now Sydney, Melbourne, Auckland, Brisbane um, 40 or 50,000 people yeah. or whatever it is so yeah. it was it was run um, uh, at the same time in Melbourne and Sydney on that day and there right. were queues down the street for people to get in the one in Melbourne, we had just about everybody who was anyone in the in the brewing industry was there, and it was like we wow. just felt like something had had really started. And immediately um, after that, or it might have even been on the same day, Steve Jeffers, um, one of my partners, was like, "We need a bigger boat," and he was on literally on the phone to the Royal Exhibition Building the next morning and had <laughs> had penciled in a date for the following year. <laughs> wow! Um, and then and that that's what became Gab. So. Um, wow. That was and, – and in the early – probably the first, I think, four years of that, I was the ops manager for them for that. Mm-hmm. It ended up outgrowing the kind of backyard operation that it was at the beginning <laughs> with us with us squeezing the whole um, sort of operation of it into the last month or so before it happened mm-hmm. um, and progressed to now um, what is a pretty sophisticated operation. And, yeah. and, and Steve and Guy um, actually sold that event in 2019 again right. um, to focus a bit more on, on stomping ground. So, yeah. So that was, so that began, yeah, sort of around about 2011, and then at by that stage we were having conversations about what we might do next, and there was a couple of ideas there, and the plan always was from that point, if when there was the next thing, that I would come on board mm-hmm. as a partner. So mm-hmm. there was a a big beer hall concept um, for the CBD that nearly got up um, for a variety of reasons didn't didn't end up happening, and then okay. around about probably 2013, 2014, we started um, conceiving the idea of stomping ground. And mm-hmm. Steve was living in the US for about a year at that time. Um, and then and he was sort of looking at what was happening over there. Guy and I were having similar sort of feelings here and inspired by places like Little Creatures in Fremantle, yeah. um, the Guinness Brewery in Dublin. Mm. Um, we saw an opportunity in Melbourne to bring our hospitality background to a brewing uh, brew pub type model yes and most of the breweries at the time in Melbourne had a small component of food or they were or they were open for only limited hours or whatever so the 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 idea of doing the full seven day lunch and dinner hospitality um, offer at a brewery um, wasn't really being done at the time so Mm -hmm. that that was where we saw our skills lying and where we saw a big opportunity and then so we started looking for sites at that point, which was a long, um, long journey in itself. Um, and we, we nearly had a site around here, on the, around the corner here in Rupert Street. Yep. Fortunately, it fell over because it was about half the size of this, <laughs> this site. <laughs> yes. Um, so that wouldn't have worked out very well. No. And then, yeah, and then this came up and we walked in and, and we just knew that this was it. Yes. Um, a massive sort of warehouse space that's beautiful. That, had beautiful bones and we, mm. we didn't need to do a lot to the building we just mm. needed you know to fit it out um and and put the brewery in and, and away we go yeah so how have you felt the challenges of last year if we're going to fast forward to like last year and 
the pandemic and you've got this amazing venue which probably seats I'd imagine over sort of 200 250 people roughly yeah it's, yeah yeah depends who's asking but yeah <laughs> about about 250 yeah about 250 so it's a big beautiful building um, obviously built to have experiences in it then you've got a pandemic in which you you know can't open we're obviously in Victoria which had 100 over 100 days of not being able to trade you know, as we were just saying before the podcast, we still, you know, we still can't trade more than 50% of occupancy. Um, what were the challenges for you last year? How did you work through that together as the three of you as founders? Um, it, was, it was a massive challenge. Yeah. Uh, that, that's um, for sure. I think in thinking about our chat today, mm. um, last night, I was looking through some of the stuff that was going on at around about that time. And it, it was actually this day last year that um, I stood in front of our heads of department and said, you know, things are not looking good here. That this was one of the things that we wanted to do in the right at the start is be as honest and transparent as we could and, yeah. and give people as much information as early as we could. Sure. So I was reading what I wrote on this day last year, last night, and it was, it was pretty dramatic. It was sort of the lights are off at the casinos in Vegas, you know, the islands waking up to St. Patrick's Day with no pubs. Mm. And we're staring down the barrel of the, of the whole hospitality industry being shut down. It hadn't been yep. shut at that point, but it, yep. was, it was kind of preparing people for the worst. And mm-hmm. I think from there, it was, it was about managing um, our people to the best uh, of our ability and, and, and just making sure they were okay. That was, that was first and foremost in yeah. our minds. I mean, our initial instinct when, when the shutdown happened, which was sort of about a week from now last year, um, our initial instinct was to want to do as much as we could to look after people, keep paying them for a little while if we had to, that sort of thing. And, and we had to, we went through some pretty um, marathon board meetings to try and resolve what the actual best path forward was. And I yeah. think um, we kept coming back to the best thing we can do for our people is have a business at the end of it yep. that, that can reemploy them. Mm-hmm. And we had to look at everything through that lens because um, the, the viability of the business was, was paramount. We had 101 people... Um, that we employed at that point. Wow. And we, the three of us felt such a huge responsibility towards them. It was that, that week leading up to the shutdown was just such a brutal, emotional week having to deliver the news to people that, that like, there's no pit of money in the bank no. for this type of kind of outcome that we could just start dishing out. We had to, we had to all just bunker down. This is, and this is the days before JobKeeper has been announced. So mm. everyone was so uncertain about about what the future was, what was, what was the future was going to hold, and um, we resolved to do a few things very early in the piece, just um, to to kind of support people, I guess. So the the first thing we we thought well, we'll is was we'll keep a couple of chefs on and we'll cook meals for people yep. for for our people, and so we committed to making sure that no one um, or their families that needed it was going to go without a hot meal each day. Um, so we had we had we had chefs here cooking up you know huge batches of, of food and people could just come and grab it when they needed it yeah um, and if they you know if they had dependents and that sort of thing they were they were more than welcome as well um, we set up a, a sort of a hardship fund for people that were really in dire straits we didn't we wanted to ensure that um, you know that no one was ever in a situation where there wasn't where it was possible they wouldn't have a roof over their head or yeah or something like that um, we. The three of us went uh, immediately took zero wages as well in, in sort of um, 
as much for the viability of, of the business as it was just in solidarity of we're, we're all in this and we're yes. not, um, we need to kind of su- support each other as much as we can. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I think the, 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 la- the final piece of it was, was providing support in the form of information for people. There was mm. so much happening in the news and so much sort of that you could read that, and not all of it was accurate or correct yes. in terms of where to go for resources or what you're eligible for or, um, or what, you know, where to turn when it came to, um, to landlords and, mm-hmm. and utility companies and that sort of stuff. So mm-hmm. we did things like um, wrote, we wrote letters that people could download um, to send to their landlords wow. and to their utility um, companies to say this is, this is our situation, that this employee works for Stomping Ground we're unable to pay them because of the lockdown, et cetera, just so that that part of the process was, was kind of done for them. Um, and then we set up a page on our website, which was kind of an internal page where any kind of relevant information for employers was, was there as a resource for them. And we, um, there, we tapped into a lot of other people that were providing great information at the time, people like mm. Michael from Worksmith, mm-hmm. who was just amazing through that phase. Works, the, their, their website was just incredible in terms of, um, accurate information. Yeah. Um, Danny Vallant was another one that was providing lots mm. of stuff that, that we used as a resource. Um, and we, yeah, we just, we did, we wanted to kind of not leave any sort of stone unturned that people had the information they needed and it was accurate. Um, and it was, and that information was also informing decisions that, that we were making as well um, in terms of, um, you know, how to proceed with people um, standing, standing down to zero hours or, or you know, JobKeeper, introducing JobKeeper, all that sort of stuff. Yeah. Into it. yeah, yeah. What did you – one question I've been asking a lot of people um, who have had venues who have been on the podcast the last six or 12 months is, like, what did you learn about your team during that time? I mean, you've got 101 staff. You guys are in dire straits. You're trying to communicate quickly. Everything's changing. You've got a team which you need to look after. I'm sure there were a couple of things that surprised you about the team in a really positive way during that time. Do you yeah. want to explain a couple of those things? Yeah, well, I mean, people were um, like people were just incredible, to be honest. Like the we had, I mean, we we were doing what we could, but there were people actually just off their own bat going over and above as well. Um, we had we had a small crew of about three people here that put together what they called a staple pack. Right. And they basically, through our chefs, ordered some food and then through we, we, we donated some beer to it and there was, it was basically for 20 bucks or 25 bucks you could get a week's worth of food essentially in terms of wow. they, they'd get a, a chunk of meat, meat in there and a kilo of rice and a, um, some other sort of staple, some tea and coffee. They'd make some cocktails and, and, um, <laughs> and put them in uh, vacuum sealed bags and and, and throw those in there. And then they'd come in in their own time and, and put those together. And so that was available to people as well. And um, just for, for, for the cost of it, which was pretty minimal, so like I said, 20, 25 bucks. Um, and I think just on top of that, people, uh, all of our people, I mean, we, we, we did towards the sort of second half of things, we did, a, a couple of people did move on to other things because we could only give them you know a limited amount of hours and they need for their for their own reasons they needed full-time hours and they took Mm. other opportunities but we but most people stayed and that to a to a person they were just um they let us know how grateful they were for for how we'd handled things but they also were just positive sort of um influences around 
the, around the place and looking out for each other and, and realising that, um, you know, just how dire things were for everybody, but, but chipping in with time or, or, or whatever to, to kind of help everyone through. And I think, I think one thing that we saw throughout the whole year is that everybody was on a bit of a roller coaster and how they were feeling about things and, and where they were at emotionally and um, not everyone was in the same spot at the same time. Some people were really up and about at times where others were, were really battling and I think um, through that people were able to support each other as much as we were able to support them and, and um, we ended up getting through in, in pretty good shape. I think if you had told us this week last year that we were going to be sitting here today and have most of our people retain and, and still um, have a business, I think we would, have, we would have taken it in a heartbeat for sure. Yeah, I can only imagine. Yeah. Um, did you, do you think it's, looking back now, do you think it's been beneficial for you to have like the other two boys as founders with you to share that burden, to share that load during such a tough time rather than just if this was, you know, just your business, Justin, and, you know, you were the only person stomping around and you had to, you know, deal with all that pain that was coming through. Like, I'm sure it must have been a really emotional time for the three of you together. Yeah, absolutely. And um, 100%, I think. But I think that's true of our working relationship over sort of 13 years anyway. I I think the kind of magic of it, for want of a better word, is Mm -hmm. that we complement each other so well. And we, you know, I think the the pandemic is is, um, an example of that. That We we weren't all in great shape the whole time, but combined... We, you know, we were, and um, and that's that's usually the case. We we have our differences and our and our disagreements along the way, but um, usually the the whatever it takes to get to the outcome is worth it because the outcome's pretty good. Yeah, and I think. Um, yeah. uh, but to answer your question a little bit more directly, I, I can't imagine doing it by myself <laughs> in that situation. I mean, the, the responsibility that we felt at the beginning for our people, I think, was enough to bear when we were splitting it three ways. Like to <laughs> to to have that. Um, you know, individually, I think would would be a real challenge. Yeah, for sure. Can we talk about independence for a minute? Because, like, talking about um, the evolution of uh, craft beer in the last twenty years, um, and we were talking with uh, another person we know in beer yesterday about the last ten years and how it's moved from sort of you know a hundred craft breweries to like you know as you said sort of five six seven hundred eight hundred breweries in a well uh, brands in uh in australia at the moment like is it is it is it tough at the moment with so much different kinds of beer on the market and sort of staying relevant and front of mind um in this craft brewery space that we're living in australia yeah i think it is i think but i think each kind of era has its own challenges I guess yeah. I mean you probably talked to people that were around when there was only 50 breweries and they'd Correct. tell you they'd yeah. tell you there was only three pubs selling their beer as well because, <laughs> yeah, that's a good point. because most people <laughs> had their taps sewn up by by the big guys so yeah. there are there is more I mean you walk into a, into a supermarket um, mm. uh, alcohol outlet and you can just see the range and so that didn't exist before either so the, the, some of it is, is offset a little bit by that but mm. But it's definitely a challenge. Standing out is difficult, and yes. um, it's it's finding ways, I guess, to, to resonate with people. And um, for us, that's through experiences. It's through um, not just getting people into into the beer hall, but also um, at events and, and and other things. It's um, and offering, I think, something that is accessible to people as well and, and, mm. and widely appealing, not just um, not just beers we like to drink, but, sure. but beers that hopefully everyone would like to drink regardless mm-hmm. of 
how into beer or, or not they are. Mm-hmm. Um, but certainly there are some challenges. There, there's, and I think you've, you've just got to realise that you can't compete on a, on a lot of fronts. Like, you, you're not going to be able to compete on price because someone will always be able to be cheaper. Yeah. Um, you're not even going to be able to compete, you know, with marketing necessarily because someone's always got a bigger marketing budget and can mm-hmm. put a bill, bigger billboard up or do whatever. So yes. it's got to be something else that resonates with people. Um, and for us, being really community focused plays into that a lot as well and mm-hmm. really engaging with, with different communities outside of just the beer bubble, if you like. And, yes. Um, we, were, we have partnerships with the likes of Movember, mm-hmm. um, Scarf, which are an amazing organisation. Awesome organisation, yeah. Um, and uh, even uh, um, sporting organisations as well. The Brunswick Zebras mm-hmm. um, is a soccer club up the road that we're connected with um, and, and a few other partnerships as well that, that are really important to us and, and give us um, a real connection to, to the community, I guess. Yeah. Has it been important to do things like Obviously, I saw on the website the, the Collingwood Beer Trail with other breweries that you've got in the area and, and obviously the skate parties which you've had here as well. Like, is it important to do different things that are quite, quite unusual, unusual in a way but very important to the brand in order to make sure that you actually are relevant? Yeah, absolutely. I think that, that is, um, uh, that's a really important part of what we do. And again, it's reaching outside of the, the beer bubbles. It's not just... A beer festival, or it's, um, mm. or not just a beer event. It is more a community event, I guess. Yes. Um, and and through that, um, you sort of it, there's there's other markets to, to be um, to be able to to get to through those partnerships as well. I guess. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Just going back to last year as well for a minute. Um, obviously, you had a situation here where you couldn't trade this place for over a hundred days. Did it make you think about different revenue streams within Stomping Ground and do you think some of those things will continue to stay on and continue to be important parts of the brand evolution? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the first thing that we did was to get uh, our beer onto our online store. We already had an online store, but it wasn't – it was – very rudimentary I mean yeah. arguably it's still very rudimentary but um, I think it's pretty good so. <laughs> at least it's got beer on it now um, so we set that up pretty quickly but that wasn't without its challenges either because none of mm. us had ever done e-com before and you know we were expecting some of our team who are hospitality people yeah to be packing boxes and doing stuff that is probably not that attractive to someone who likes serving people and yeah. and really interacting with people mm-hmm at a time when you know they everyone was in locked in their houses and so there was and there was a lot of trepidation about even leaving the house so yes. so it wasn't without its challenges but it was a significant revenue stream immediately for mm-hmm. us and mm-hmm. um, it was uh, I think mainly born from the the support that people want that, that local support that people wanted to give to local businesses yes um, and so it's something that has endured and, it, and we are still doing it. It's obviously um, at a much reduced level now than yeah. now that you can go to a bottle shop. Mm-hmm. Um, but we're now starting to have conversations about how uh, we can now maximise that or, or um, use it a little bit better than perhaps we did. We, we, what okay. we've done previously is probably based on demand and now, and now we're starting to have some conversations about how we can um, attract a few more people to that channel, be it through subscriptions or... Mm-hmm. Um, or exclusive beers potentially or yep. some, something else that gives them a reason to buy the beer directly from mm-hmm. us. Um, mm-hmm. And the, a lot of people resonate with the, with the concept of something that's come direct from the brewery regardless yes. of um, 
uh, of whether it's fresher or not than, than something that's in the bottle shop. There is that perception um, that I think is attractive to people. Um, and I think habits in general have just shifted towards that, that e-com, local mindset. Uh, e-com mm. and lo- a local, mm. yeah, both yeah. those, definitely. Do you think that's going to continue to resonate, that sort of local that local feeling? Like we, we actually talked about that with Michael this morning when we recorded a podcast with him about the hope that people will continue to go back to um, restaurants to maybe buy another, you know, uh, another revenue stream that they've they've done in their restaurant rather than go to the supermarket and that kind of thing or you know coming making sure they're coming to stopping grounds and actually buying their beer from here or buying it through your website rather than buying it from somewhere else are you thinking that's going to continue on yeah i think it will yeah. um, to what extent i'm not sure but i think that hyper local mm. kind of movement yes is now there's no turning back from it I yeah think, i think there's um it's it, the groundswell is now so large, and I think you're seeing um, with some breweries in the states focusing more mm. on their local patch than than more broadly. Yes, um, here in in Australia, Stone and Wood have always done it, despite the fact they're the biggest independent brewery mm. in the country, and they are national. Their backyard is still heavily protected and looked Big after time. by them, mm-hmm. um, and it's kind of informed our strategy on that front as well in in really focusing on Melbourne and Victoria, sure. and um, because we think that's 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 where what people are wanting at the moment. Yeah. And I don't think it's just beer. I think it's bread and cheese and, um, and everything yeah. else that they, I think that support for local and, and feeling like you have a, um, a bit more understanding of, of where it's coming from rather than just pulling something off a supermarket shelf. You're yeah. Actually buying it from someone whose story, you know, something about there's a connection. Um, there's the, mm. you, you, you trust their ethics mm. um, and, and you feel more comfortable making that purchase. I think. Yeah, for sure couple more questions before we wrap up today. I really want to talk about um, the Moorabbin site. Obviously, you've got here in Collingwood, you've got Melbourne Airport and, and then Moorabbin. Like, what what made you guys want to do that Moorabbin site and, and how is that different to this site in Collingwood? Um, well, we see our venues as a real crucial part of our overall picture. We, mm-hmm. we uh, rate ourselves to deliver a pretty good hospitality experience and mm-hmm. we feel like, um, again, it comes back to... to places that have sort of inspired us like like little creatures in Frio I think people resonate with having an experience at the source of, yeah. of whatever it is that they're they're enjoying so mm-hmm. for decades people have got who have gone to Perth and come back to Melbourne just rave about Frio and, and and little creatures there and you can't go to Perth without without visiting it no and the pale ale there that you have um, the folklore would tell you is the best version of that. Yeah, it's just different. Out. Yeah, <laughs> and and that and it is different, regardless mm. of whether it's scientifically or technically different. Mm-hmm. It's different because mm-hmm. you're in the vibe, and you can see the tanks, and you can yeah. meet the brewer, and you can taste, you can touch the ingredients, you yep. can smell the hops, and so it is different. And mm-hmm. that experience is what resonates with people, and and we believe it's is what makes people go into a bottle shop potentially and, and choose our beer yep. over someone else's. So, um, so Moorabbin is an extension of that. It's, it's, a, it's a much more hospitality play than it is a brewing play right. down there. So the brewery yep. um, is, is a 12-heck brew house with four or five serving tanks and four or five fermenters. It's, it's, yep. Are you still brewing there? We will be, we'll yeah. be, yeah, yeah absolutely. Right. So, but it's to brew some fun stuff to, yeah, to cool. kind of – um, do lots of different things. There'll mm-hmm. be, I mean, we've set a pretty cracking pace with different beers as it is. Like we're, yes. and we're, we're trying to, in some ways, slow that down a little bit just from a coping with it from a sales and marketing <laughs> point of view. Yes. But 
down there will be about that. It'll be, there'll be a new beer in, on each week and there'll be different styles that we haven't tried before probably and there'll be stuff that's unique that only gets sold there and other stuff that we might sell here in Collingwood as well. Um, it's, it's a sort of experimental type set up for the, for the brewery down there. And yep. then it's a, a big European-style beer hall in an industrial setting like similar to this. Um, and it'll be similar enough that you know that it's us, but different mm. enough that it's not a cookie, 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 cookie cutter. cutter. Mm-hmm. Um, and one thing that we're really excited about down there is it's got a, um, a big function room as well, which we haven't yeah, right. had here. This, this area that we're sitting in at the moment was going to be a function room until we ran out of money for this fit out. Um, and we decided <laughs> it's probably easier just to deck it like the rest of this area. Um, but we've always wanted it to be a small function room. And down there will be a function room on the sort of scale that's capable of, of – you know, mid-sized weddings and mm-hmm. um, uh, corporate stuff. Wow. Um, and it, we, we think that's going to be really valuable down there because it's, it's an interesting area with, with quite a bit of residential around mm. it, but also some light industrial. But then there's some corporate stuff down there. Coca-Cola's yeah. got a head office down there. There's, yeah. there's some corporate stuff as well, which we think is an opportunity for us. Must make you feel pretty proud to open a new venue after what you've been through in the last 12 months. Yeah, it does. It does. And it was touch and go there for a while. Mm. Um, it was supposed to open in July last year. And yeah. um, we actually gave the go ahead to the builders on a Friday in March. It might have been the <laughs> 20th. And then on the Monday, we called it all off. Yeah. Um, and it was, a, it was a long road navigating, you know, whether it was going to be possible at one point there towards the end of last year. So to have it now almost built and um, and ready to open yeah it's a it's a massively proud moment for us for sure and we're, we're really excited about it is there a couple of questions before i let you go as i just said i've thought of another question um is there something that you want to take out of last year for yourself that you want to keep that maybe you weren't doing before yeah i think i think really when i mentioned earlier that people went through the pandemic at different stages and the various levels of roller coasters of emotions and that sort of thing. I think if anything, it gave me a real strong um, belief that I need to be aware of where everyone's at emotionally at any, at any given stage. I think sometimes mm-hmm. you sort of take for granted, um, you know, that everyone's, everyone's right up for doing whatever big event you've got on the next week or they're yeah. right up for whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, and the, but there's there's times when people are battling a bit and they they need a bit of um, a bit of love rather than just rolling out the next thing and I think and I think it was just highlighted by the, by the fact that it was that everybody had a such a different experience of last year that was so unique to each individual mm. they all had different um, family situations different financial situations different pressures at different times and um, I think that's something we we always need to be aware of and and I'm going to be more aware of moving forward than probably I was Mm -hmm. before last year Mm -hmm. that's a good insight Um, my last question to you Justin is what are you looking forward to both professionally and personally in 2021 personally I'm looking forward to no homeschooling for my son this year (laughs) which is is good because that was a battle Um, Uh, uh, look we're really excited about Moorabbin we're really excited also about um some optimism finally yeah. after after um, continually hearing for 12 months of, about all the stuff we can't do mm-hmm. we can now start um, looking at things that we can do and mm-hmm. um, events are a big part of that with, within the venues um, uh, partnerships increasing uh, 
rejoining Scarf on our, on our mm. journey with them and, and getting some events happening with them. Mm-hmm. Collingwood Brewery Trail that you mentioned earlier is a, mm-hmm. is a sort of a touristy walking trail that we've put together with Molly Rose and Fixation, The Mill and Bodrigi, mm-hmm. which is launching this coming Sunday. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think just continuing to, to grow the brand and, and, um, and get out there and, and try and resonate with, with Melbourne as much as we can. Yeah. Justin, what's the best way that Pigman find out about Stomping Ground and, and with yourself as well, if you want to? Um, Stompingground.beer is the best place to, mm-hmm. um, to find out what, what we're up to. All the um, social media handles are on there. Mm-hmm. Um, and you can keep an eye on what's going on with, with the build in Moorabbin through there as well, yep. um, with the opening date looking like end of May, early June. We'll see, we'll see how we go. <laughs> um, and, or you can come and see us here yeah. or at the airport when you're on your way in or, in or out of Melbourne mm-hmm. or um, and, and um, at down at Moorabbin once that gets open as well. Happy days. Justin Joyner from Stomping Ground. Thank you so much. No worries. Thanks, Sean. Thanks for having me. Thanks again for tuning into another episode of Principle of Hospitality, the podcast. We hope you really enjoyed this episode. Please comment, like, and share this podcast with your friends in the industry. We're making this content with the industry in mind, so we'd really appreciate you sharing along with those that you care about in the industry. Thanks as well to our sponsor, Chef's Hat, the largest family-owned and operated hospitality supplier in Australia. They strive to inspire cooks, chefs, bakers and bartenders to deliver the best product with the best tools every day. We're so proud to partner with them. That's where the industry shops. And if you don't know us at Poe, Sash, my co-founder from Principal Design, has one of the best design agencies in Australia. So if you're looking for anything around strategy, branding, digital design, and graphic design, then you can find them at principaldesign.com.au and myself at Open Pantry Consulting for anything to do with hospitality operations, strategy, and recruitment. Thanks so much for tuning in. Thanks to Chef's Hat for supporting us. And until next time, stay safe. Cheers. Thank you.